0: Welcome to the Secure Your Retirement Podcast. This is the place where high achieving professionals come to gain confidence on how to successfully navigate their transition into and life during retirement. There's no such thing as a passive retirement plan. To have a successful financial future, your plan must be actively managed. Each week, we will bring you action plans and expert interviews that will help you gain insights, learn fresh perspectives, and finally experience peace of mind about your retirement. Here to help you achieve your dream retirement and live the life you deserve are your hosts, certified financial planners, Freden Stansel and Merce Tariq.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We have with us, I think is going to be a fantastic interview. We have with us Andrew Updike, and he is an economist. And we're going to talk to him about what even that means to be an economist. Merce and I are happy to have you with us today, Andrew. When it comes to the economy and when it comes to, you know, what people are concerned about, it is endless right now. There are just a tremendous amount of concerns, and so we've got some good questions for you. So thanks for being here today.
2: Thanks for the invite. I'm excited to be here.
1: Great. You know, before we hop into some of the economy Type questions. Can we get a little bit of background from you now? Could you tell us maybe a little bit about how you got into being an economist, and even what that means? Like, you know, what's your schooling like, and what what is that? How do you get there?
2: Yeah. So actually, I found out about economics in high school. I had a math professor that I really liked. I really enjoyed math, and I I really enjoyed learning about how numbers translate out into the rest of the world. He told me you should take this macroeconomics class. You look at how worlds, how countries, how companies interact with each other, supply demand and all those things that I know put a lot of people to sleep, but I found it incredibly interesting. So when I went to college, I studied economics and business because those two kind of intertwined. And that was the world, that was the industry that I, I wanted to go into because I, I love learning. And it's a field that you're never going to figure out the perfect answer. So it's it's something that is always bringing a new complexity. There's always something new to be learning about. It's a constant journey. So we deal with a lot of numbers, but at the end of the day, what economics is about is what are the forces that impact how we interact with each other, how businesses interact, how growth occurs in countries over time, what types of policies, what types of regulation, what types of incentives move nations forward. That's what I look at day in and day out.
3: That's great, Andrew. So when you're looking at that day in and day out, what is there a section of it or what what do you think that you would say that you love most about what you do as an economist?
2: Yeah. So I I tend to focus on macroeconomics. That's basically country level. It's a higher level. There's groups that look at what's called microeconomics. That's how do individuals make purchasing decisions. But I look a lot at policies and, and how do businesses grow over time? What creates growth. And there's there's aspects of psychology associated with that. There's aspects of you know how do you plan for the future? If you're a business, if anybody who's on has taken your finance 101, those are the same courses that I would take to think about if you're running a business, if you're operating a business, or if you're working at a business, what causes you to make decisions on how you want to go, how you plan to grow. And then as you move up the chain, as you move to governmental levels that are overseeing that, how do they determine the impact of increasing or decreasing tax rates? How do they determine changes in regulation and the impact that's going to have throughout society? So it's wide ranging. My heavy focus is U.S. economics and particularly the economics in terms of how they impact market-based companies, the larger companies and those that we talk about when we talk about stocks
1: and bonds. Great. Can you tell us just for our listeners here who it is you work for and a little bit about your business, your company? Sure.
2: Sure. I work for First Trust. We are an asset management firm based out of Wheaton, Illinois. We're about 26 miles straight west of downtown Chicago. And we have two sides of the company. We have the asset management side, which we've been ranked by Barron's as the number one equity fund manager over each of the last two years. I work on the research side. So the research supports both our asset managers. And then we put out content to support advisors and investors thinking about what's going on in the markets, what's going on in the economy. It's been an incredible place to work. We are a privately owned company. We are going to remain privately owned because we have very strong beliefs in the value that can be added through research through and by thinking over a long-term strategy. And so it's it's a great place to work. I actually have both of my brothers and most recently my dad we've brought into the company. It's about I think the company itself has about 900 people, but there's a lot of updykes here.
3: Wow, that's awesome. So before we dive into the meat of it, and we have a lot of really cool things to cover today, can you just tell us, you mentioned your family, tell us a little bit about your family and also where you're at, because we're speaking to you here from
2: Raleigh, North Carolina. So I grew up, I was born and raised in the Chicago land area, Naperville, Illinois, which is, I'm based in Wheaton, First Trust is based in Wheaton. Naperville is about 5-10 miles south of here. So I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up just outside Chicago. I went to school, undergrad in Michigan at a small college called Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Did economics and business there. Came back to the Chicagoland area to work. Did my MBA at Northwestern. I love the Midwest, but most important, I'm big on family. So I've got my parents here. I've got two kids at home, so they've got their grandparents. They get to see them every single week. And on my wife's side, her parents are here. So being so close with family, unless they move, I'm not going anywhere.
1: Fantastic. Well, we appreciate all that. Now, what we want to do is take you in and kind of get your thoughts, your opinions, it might say. And this first question I know is so big because it's going to cover a lot of different things, but we'd just like to hear your feedback. So when you think about what we have going on today in our economy, maybe here or the world, what kind of challenges, issues, or opportunities do you see that maybe... It's not something we hear all the time if you get on to, you know, your regular media outlet, like on the TV there, that a lot of our listeners would get on and listen to.
2: Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we get so much of our information, so much of our news, so much of the thought, and the, the media sources a lot of times, they're all vying for attention. They're looking for that attention. They want you to turn in after the commercial break. They want you to flip to the next page of the magazine or pick up that newspaper every single morning. So there's that old phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. And there's been, a, I think, a bias towards negativity. We tend to see, and we're loss-averse people. We focus on things that have us concerned more so than on things that get us excited or things that maybe bring hope. So I think that's one of the challenges. And even before the coronavirus arose this year, I can't tell you, I've never had a week go by over the last, let's say since 0809, there hasn't been a week that's gone by where there hasn't been something in the news that said this could trigger the next recession. And people are always watching out for that. And I, I understand because you work your lives to save up this money to be prepared for retirement and you put in years and decades of hard labor to get to that spot, and then the markets can have these gut wrenching movements, these quick movements, these unexpected movements, and it's a very emotional process. And so that brought about, especially 0809, it brought about kind of this fear reflex that every time we heard, you know, the BP oil spill, or or we had it and we had Brexit, and we had so many things telling us this could bring the next recession, and and. You know, if you watch TV, they've called 200 of the last two recessions. So that's one of the challenges is fighting through the noise. We have a a saying at First Trust that math wins. At the end of the day, math wins. And emotion can move things in the short term. Markets are a great example of that. Emotions can win out in short terms, but the math wins over the long term. So we try to step back because maybe this is the best example I can give. If you think about watching TV today or watching the news so much of the time, it's like, it's like you're looking at a painting with your nose up against it. And they're focusing in on one really small area and they're looking at it in detail and those details might look scary, but until you step back and you see the broader picture and you understand how something fits in context, a lot of times when you step back, it looks a little bit less scary or by putting it in perspective, it gives you a better view of the landscape and where we may be heading. So that I think is one of the challenges. And I think at times, it hides what I think is one of the greatest opportunities. And if you take a step back and you look at the innovation and the entrepreneurship that's happening in the world around us, there's, I would argue, like modern day miracles that are happening that we're not hearing enough about. If we look at the battle we've had against cancer over the past 20 to 30 years, and we've all been impacted by it. I think everybody knows somebody, whether it's a family member, a friend, someone in their community who's faced cancer. We've had these amazing medical advancements over the past 20 to 30 years that have improved things like health outcomes and and we're starting to get this really targeted medicine and we're doing that not just there, we're seeing it in technology, we're seeing it in the energy industry. We saw the changes that brought about US becoming a net exporter when 20 years ago, the leaders in the industry, energy industry would have said, hey, peak oil's behind us, right? We're gonna be a purchaser from here on out. So we focus on the black swans and we miss the golden geese. I think if we could shift that a little bit, get more good news out there more focus on the progress it would help bring perspective to our everyday lives
3: yeah i would agree i mean there's so much out there it's really hard to just know which one to pay attention to Ray and i we're on the same wavelength there as far as we believe that math does speak the truth we use quite a bit of math in the way that we manage money in the market so we completely agree with that but sticking kind of on that topic of math there's so much Mm -hmm. going on right now with what the fed is doing the worry about the value of the dollar what are your thoughts on inflation because i know it's a huge concern for a lot of people inflation has been pretty much non-existent for the past 10 years at a low maybe one one percent or so last hundred years it's up as much as three percent so What are your thoughts on that? Where do you see that going with everything that's going on?
2: Yeah, we've had a lot of money that's come into the system. And now if we step back and look at 2008, 2009, we had the Fed step in back then with what they called quantitative easing. They bought treasuries, they put money into the banking sector. But in 2008, 2009, all that money ended up on bank balance sheet. It's not physical cash that's sitting in a bank vault because now we do things digitally. So they're zeros and ones in a computer system. But they brought a lot of funds into the system back then, and they sat in reserves. They didn't get lended out. They didn't make it into consumers' hands. They didn't make it into businesses' hands. Now, this time, in the way that we structured the stimulus, whether that's through the PPP program and getting money to small and medium-sized businesses, whether that's the checks that were sent out to individuals, the $1,200 checks, or the additional payments out on things like unemployment claims, This time, the money has made it into the system and we can see that. We can see the rise in funds. Now, so far, they've stayed on the sidelines. We've seen them go into checking accounts. We've seen them go into savings accounts. We've seen this major shift in the money market funds. There's an incredibly high demand right now for safety. As we were talking about a little bit earlier, if you got stung by 2008, 2009, and then you got stung again coming into 2020, and you see these volatile movements in the markets, There's a lot of people that said, you know what I want? I understand that I'm gonna get virtually no return in checking, savings, money market funds, but I feel like they're more predictable. They're quote unquote safe. So we've got this money on the sidelines and it's been massive flows. Now, if that money starts to come back into the system, let's say we get a vaccine or let's say we see a return of confidence that we are growing out of this recession and it's gonna continue through the end of 2020 and into 2021. As we see those start to return, if we still have supply chains offline, which we're getting back but we have a ways to go, we would expect to see that result in a pickup in inflation. Now, I'm not picturing inflation like we saw in the 70s, right? I'm not picturing double-digit inflation or hyperinflation, but I do think that we'll see a pickup in inflation to the 3 to 4% range, running above trend for a little while. And then I think it'll kind of calm back down and we'll be in the one and a half to two and a half percent range that the Fed is ultimately targeting. I think they're comfortable with that. We've run under for so long. I think they're comfortable with running over for a little bit of time. But it's something that people are going to certainly be keeping an eye on, especially if you live back in the 70s or the 80s or into the 90s. And you think about the cost of buying a house back then, getting a mortgage loan then versus the rates you can get right now, it changes what you can afford to do. It changes investment decisions.
1: You know, the Fed came out and said that they were going to, you know, try to stabilize even on the bond market and they were going to buy, you know, bonds. Then they said we're going to buy individual bonds. First, they were going to buy ETFs. Mm -hmm. Then they said they're going to buy individual bonds. And there was even some chatter about them even buying equities. But I mean, what's your opinion? Do you believe that they being the Fed would that kind of interaction that that's making the market not real you know like is it driving the market in such a way that it's just not it what we have right now is just maybe inflated yeah so
2: i, I would say that the markets if i think about the equity markets right now and whether the fed has created let's say a, a sugar high i don't think that's the case we can talk about that we can dive deeper into that and what's driving the markets and this disconnect this seeming disconnect between the markets and the economy but on the bond side what it does when they're doing these purchases and it drives rates lower Is that if you need return, if you need a certain level of income over time, it's maybe pushing you out into riskier instruments in order to get that. So, you know, there's been this question, will the Fed ultimately buy equity? Personally, I hope that they don't. I hope that they don't, because if they do, and then we start having government ownership stakes, especially in a situation like this, because let's step back for a minute, let's go back to March. And remember this environment that we're in, we've seen the the shutdown of the shelter in place, right? we had a virus that we were facing. It's not that these businesses that ran into difficulty with liquidity, with solvency, they didn't have bad business models. They didn't have bad products or bad services. They weren't sending their employees home because their employees were poor workers. We had this shutdown imposed because of a virus and it was a government decision that brought us to that point. So if we ultimately say, hey, the government made a decision to shut things down. These companies had a a hard time surviving in that environment where they didn't have a choice of being open or not. And now they're taking ownership stakes. The government is taking ownership stakes in it. It creates kind of a questionable pattern for the future. It creates a precedence that I don't think they really want to go down. And so fingers crossed, they stick on the bond side. They continue to work from a liquidity standpoint and don't get over into equities.
1: Yeah. Just one follow up because you said it in there. You talked about, you know, and this gets talked about so much is the disconnect between what's happening Mm -hmm. in the stock market and the economy. And you said we can talk about that. So, can you give us your opinion? Do you think that's a disconnect? Do you think the market since March, you know, has, which has just shot up and everybody's looking at it going, how can it shoot up when, you know, we still have, businesses that aren't open and, you know, they're not able to produce like they were before. And yet we're seeing all this rise in the market. Do you think there's a real disconnect there?
2: If we dive into the markets and we dig in and we look at sectors and subsectors and we say, who's performing the worst in the markets? It's not that dissimilar from what we see outside. It's restaurants, it's hotels, it's leisure, it's hospitality, it's airlines, it's oil and gas. The difference is that at the end of the day, you don't invest in GDP. And GDP, the composition of our country and the industries that we work in is different from the composition of the industries and the companies that we invest in. In order to become a market-based company, in order to go public, you have to have incredible demand for what you do. It is an unbelievably difficult thing to get to the point where you become a publicly traded company. And there are thousands, tens of thousands of businesses out there mom-and-pop shops, small-medium-sized businesses that would love to have it. It comes with better access to equity. It comes with better access to debt. It comes with more developed relationships with the banks. And with those funds, you're able to grow. And as we look at what's happened over the last few months, there's a couple things that happened. One is that the market-based companies, on average, they had stronger balance sheets. They knew they could weather this storm. And so they were in a better position. We saw a lot of job loss. We saw over 20 million jobs lost between March in April was a massive impact to the economy. And a lot of those came from non-publicly traded companies. They came from what we see here on Main Street as we walk down the roads in our towns. And ultimately what happened is as we moved from the outside inside and we moved from the inside online, we started dealing more and more with the large companies. We can't go to the, the hardware store down the street. For myself, I moved at the end of March. It had been planned for a while. We moved as we go into shelter in place. All of a sudden, I can't go to the local hardware store when I need to replace a fan, so where do I go? I go to who has the supply chain and the distribution networks to bring the products to me. And those tend to be the very large companies. So e-commerce sales, for example, have grown immensely this year. And the market-based companies that deal in internet technology, that deal with communication services that let us do things like this conversation we're having, the groups that are involved in healthcare that are fighting and battling to bring a vaccine, to bring treatments, They've seen increases in spending. They've seen their activity return. They've seen their employees return. They're moving at a faster pace. There are the market-based companies in the industries that are hitting our economy, they're also doing poorly in the markets. They just represent a much, much smaller share. So I don't know if it's so much as a disconnect between the markets just moving based on hopes and dreams while the economy is quote unquote real life. I think both are very real the economy is going to take longer to recover, in large part because of the nature of what that encompasses, not just the fast-growing side that is the market. They've got the slow growth, the no growth, the negative growth parts of the economy that are not part of the markets. So it's not a new thing. I think it's maybe been accelerated, it's been exacerbated because we've seen this increased shift in technology. But if you look back from 2008, 2009 to where we were back in February of this year, before things turned lower, What we had seen is that the the sales, the revenue, the net incomes of the market-based companies had grown exponentially faster than U.S. GDP. And I don't think that's a trend that's going to be changing over the next 5, 10, 20, 50 years. So,
3: Andrew, you mentioned a term there, GDP. Mm -hmm. I know we in the financial world, we understand that. But, you know, growth domestic product, can we go a very quick high level as to what that is, how that gets calculated, and then kind of take us through... What's happened since January? You know, we went into March and then second quarter, we hit the what I believe is the worst in my lifetime, probably in all of our lifetimes, GDP. Uh, And now now we're kind of it seems like we're coming out of it. So we're in this recovery mode because of some of what you just said. Some of these larger companies that have larger stakes are doing really well to, in all essence, drive the markets up while you've got some of the smaller mom and pops that we think are going to struggle for quite some time. And I'll let you speak to that as well. But can
2: you kind of take us through what's happened this year so far? So let's start with what is GDP? GDP is what we produce as a nation, what we produce. It's our goods. It's our services produced in the United States. People that are working in the United States, let's say there's someone from Germany who's working here. If they're producing it here in the United States, it's U.S. production. That includes everything that we sell overseas. Now, we buy things, from the rest of the world that offsets when we run our calculations but at the end of the day gdp is by many means it's one of our most critical numbers because it's how much are we producing as a nation as we have more people as the population grows that should increase the size of gdp as we get new technologies that let us do more produce more per person that's going to increase gdp so we track it over time to see how much are we growing that output, how much are we able to grow we produce. Now, we get that number quarterly and it operates with a lag, so we don't yet know. Here we stand, you know, basically two months through the third quarter, and we won't know how good the third quarter was until October, till the end of October. But we have the numbers so far for Q2. And what happened in Q2? The economy declined through the first estimate at a, 32 and a half, or 32.9% annualized, Now, annualized rate just means if we continue to decline at the pace we did in the second quarter over the span of the year, we would be down by about a third in our total production, which is massive. Normally, GDP in a year is moving by 2%, 2 2.5%. The largest decline that we saw for any quarter post-World War II up until this point was 10%, which by chance happened to come also from a pandemic. That was in 1958-59 when we were dealing with the Asian flu. And the Asian flu killed 116,000 people in the United States. It killed over a million people internationally at a time when our population was roughly half the size of what we have right now. So one thing we've been able to look back in time at prior pandemics, at prior outbreaks and see how does that impact production, both going into it and then how quickly we recover. And one thing we see is that it tends to be severe, but also short. Now, this year, coming into the year, January and February, we were growing at a healthy pace. We were growing at around 3.1%, 3.2%. If that had continued throughout the year, this was on track to be the best year for growth since 2005, before mm. the last recession. But obviously, we felt the impact. We had the shelter in place. April, in particular, was a, the worst month for the economy in close to a century. So in the second quarter, we saw that massive 32.9% decline based on data we've gotten since then, because again, data operates with a lag. It looks like that number is going to move a little bit higher. We're going to get in the next week or two, we're going to get the second estimate that takes into account more data, but it's still going to be 32%, 32 half percent Now, the question is, after such a catastrophic quarter with such a decline, where do we go from here? And we've got some of the data on what's happened in July and in August. And so far, it looks like this third quarter is growing at about a 20 percent annualized rate, which would be one of the best quarters from a percentage standpoint in the post World War II era. We saw this in 58, 59. You have a downturn and what happens is you shift when activity takes place. So things like housing, which we've seen over recent weeks, housing has returned back rather quickly. People wanted to buy homes in March, in April, in May, into June, and things were shut down. So now as things reopen, and particularly with interest rates where they're at, they said, okay, we're going to make those purchases now. So those numbers in many cases are now above where they were pre-pandemic. And retail sales is above where it was pre-pandemic. People have gotten back in some of their purchases. There's other areas that have a long way to go, but we're seeing strong, we're seeing healthy growth so far in Q3. Now, the question is, What could derail that? And there's questions on what may happen with the coronavirus. Where could we go from here? What else could we see? Obviously, we still have the elections ahead of us in November, those could all impact things. But as it stands right now, the employment numbers turned in May and they grew in June and they grew in July and they look like they're a track again, they're gonna be growing in August. The recovery is off to solid footing.
1: All right, so that brings us to, to, I think, some points. Like what we talk to our clients or prospective clients that we work with, you know, there's some things that are scary to them. Some of those what ifs that you just said. Now, yeah. Merce and I, we actively manage money. So we will shift as things shift. We go back to what you said earlier. It's all based on the math. We're not of the belief system that says, okay, calls things are okay today means they're always going to be okay. So I want to play a little bit of what if here with you and tell me what you think the markets might do. So we know that. You know, when mm-hmm. Corona began um, and started talking about whether or not it was going to be in the United States, and then we said, yes, it's in the United States, and then it rapidly moved, and it just really shocked the markets. So everybody just it just shot it down yeah. in a very, very, very quick moving spiral in the stock market. All yeah, that makes it. sense. Now, what if we do have another outbreak, let's say another increased level of outbreak of coronavirus, as some are saying that is going to happen here as we get into the next flu season? How do you Mm -hmm. think the market's going to react on this round? You know, because it's a little different. We kind of know a little bit more about it than we didn't know in February, March, January, February, March. What do you think the market's going to do if we have another surge?
2: I think we absolutely know more about the virus now than we did back then. There's a couple of different factors, and as we watch, think about what happened in March and April, and that's when we saw the rise with New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Then we saw it. Here in in Illinois, we saw that elevation in cases and we saw the elevation, we saw the rising mortality numbers. And then remember back in April, the second half of April, where we saw the numbers start to turn and it brought some confidence. And we we saw the reopening process start across the country and we opened in May and, and into June. And we got to the point where every single state in the country was at least partially reopened. Then mid-June, around the 17th, we started to see the pickup again. And then there was questions. Is this the second wave? And it was semantics. thing. It was the first wave for some states that didn't see the first wave earlier. But we saw a pickup. Now, things had changed between that first wave and when the second wave, and we saw Florida and Texas and Arizona and California as big drivers of what was happening in terms of case numbers. But there was a couple of things that happened between those two areas. And it's interesting when you look at the U.S. response, right? April, May, we do the shutdown the shelter in place. And virtually the entire country shuts down. Now, the second time, we have more reported cases, more confirmed cases. Part of that is because we were testing more. Back in March and April, we were averaging about 100,000 tests per day. When we got into June, as things started, we were testing 500,000. We were running 500,000 tests per day and that continued to grow to 600, 700, 800. We got days in the 900,000s during June and July. Now, it wasn't just testing that was leading to higher numbers because we saw positive test rates increasing as well. But one of the things that happened with that increasing testing over time is it meant that we were starting to catch cases earlier across groups, across demographics, across whether you have a pre-existing condition or you do not. So if we dig behind the scenes and we start looking at the data on hospitalizations and health outcomes from those that made it into the hospitals, we see this improvement in mortality rates even among those who were hospitalized. And if we look at the three states with the highest confirmed cases, so you're talking about Florida, California, and Texas, I believe are the three, you add up the mortalities from those three states and it's still less than what we saw back in New York. Now, some of that is testing. You catch cases earlier, it improves health outcomes. Part of it is that you had those hospital systems in that first wave that were going in blind and they had no idea what they were gonna need for personal protective equipment. They didn't know what they would need for ventilators. They didn't know how many ICU beds they would need or emergency rooms or inpatient beds. What do we do if we start to see hospitals fill up? They were flying blind. They were learning as we faced the abyss. Now, as we saw that turn in April, and we saw that kind of continuing into May and into June, they started to have conversations with hospitals across the country. And they said, this is what we wish we would have known when we started to fight it. And here's what we wish we would have known about the equipment we needed. Here's what we wish we would have known about how to set up our hospitals. Here's the data we wish we were tracking in real time to be able to communicate across our networks and we built that out. And when it hit Texas and Arizona and Florida and California, we were far better prepared to handle it on the hospital side. Remember, we did the shutdowns to bend the curve so we wouldn't overwhelm the hospital system. This time around, they watched it and they said, okay, we're going to watch our number of cases and we're going to watch our ICU bed utilization and we're going to watch our ventilator numbers And we're going to watch across the counties, across the state. And if we need to act, if we need to do another shutdown, we'll do that. They watched the numbers and they started to elevate and they got up to 80 to 90% ICU bed usage, but they were tracking the numbers. And they said, well, we have the ability to do surge capacity. We can add additional beds if needed. We can do negative pressure rooms on some of our, but they didn't end up in most cases, they didn't end up needing to get to that spot. So they said, okay, we don't need to do the national level shutdown. Let's pull back on things like restaurants and bars. Maybe it's not the best idea to have a bar open, have people go drink, and then say, hey, but drink, but make good decisions about, you know, social distancing and how you're interacting with each other. So we saw pullbacks in some areas, but on net, we continued to be far more open from an economic perspective. We had more activity taking place than we did during that first wave. We've also, at that same time, we've seen improvements on the treatment side. We've got Gilead's remdesivir, who it's been shown is is showing significant improvements in reducing mortality among patients. We just got information about how we can use plasma. We can use the plasma from people who have had the virus, who now have the antibodies. We can use that with treatments. And they've put uh, an emergency use measure. They're now going to start distributing that and using that as a treatment method. We found even little things, like having a patient lie prone on their stomachs it can reduce pressure on their lungs. This is a respiratory virus. And by easing that pressure, allowing for the airflow, it's resulting in improved health outcomes. So across the board, if you look at the mortalities as a percent of cases, if you look at mortalities as a percent of hospitalizations, it's been moving in a very positive direction. So as I look out and say, what if, what may happen in September, October, November, December? I'm remembering that every single day we are taking another step forward in our knowledge of the virus, in our knowledge of how to treat it, in our knowledge of how to prepare for it. And we have not seen that the states and the areas that saw the big outbreaks, New York, New Jersey, all those, they haven't seen a resurgence in those same cities. It's that it's shown up in new places. And now we have, if you look at the 10 largest metro areas in the United States, they have virtually all now gone through it. So we could see some pickups in other parts of the country. As of this morning, we had 14 states with rising trends but those states tended to be smaller from a population and the economic output standpoint. And if we see that continue, I'm not expecting to see another round of shutdowns. I could be wrong. It's possible, but the data, what we've seen from other countries is suggesting it's unlikely. And I think that in September, October, November, we've got three studies on vaccines that are going to be coming through. We're gonna be getting some final numbers. And if any of those shows that it has been effective and we start to roll off on the vaccines, We are going to be ramping that thing up like crazy and that's going to help counter a third wave. So it's not like we're facing it like we did in March and April. It's a different environment and that changes how we as a nation ultimately have to respond in the face of that threat.
3: Yeah. So you mentioned the vaccine. So in the office, I'm typically looked at as the pessimist and Raiden's kind of the optimist and we balance each other out really well. But I'm going to go the optimistic way here and say, you know, those three vaccines that are in good contention, let's say we get one, I don't know, by first of next year, like they've been talking about, or even a little bit later. Well, all the problems don't go away then. We still have a lot that we're sorting through. So a lot of things that we're worrying about, all the money that we're printing. So Say we do get that vaccine the first of next year, how do you see things playing out and how do you see, you know, as far as the economy recovering, how long does that take? So
2: one of the big problems I think that we're going to face, even when we get the vaccine, even if they say next month, there's questions that in September we could get news on the, the University of Oxford vaccine. Once we have the vaccine, then the next big question comes, how do we distribute it? How right. do we get that out? Do we get hundreds of millions of doses? Because pretty much all of these are at two dose. So if we have 330 million people, how do we get 660 million dosages around the country? And You know, some people are going to fight taking the vaccine, but that's going to be a whole process from an economic standpoint. I think it will bring some confidence on the consumer side. I think it's going to bring some confidence on the business side that we are making progress and that this is likely to be sustainable progress. That doesn't mean that we jump back and immediately we're back at where we're at because we've seen massive job losses, particularly, we've seen tens of thousands of restaurants close during the pandemic. And those are businesses, those are jobs that don't exist anymore, and it's gonna take time for new businesses to form and for companies to bring all of their employees back and then hire to make up the employees that were lost. From a, an output standpoint, when do we get to the point where we're producing the same amount of GDP as we did at the end of 2019? we're probably looking at late 2021, late next year into early 2022. I think a better metric of when we're kind of back towards normal is when we see the unemployment rate get down to four to five percent. And that's probably gonna take until about 2023. So it's a gradual process. It's not an instantaneous thing, but I think we're on firm footing. I think we'll see elevated growth here in the third quarter. I think that's gonna slow a bit into the fourth quarter. And then we're gonna see above trend, let's say 4% to 5% growth in 2021. And then we'll have to watch to see where it goes in 2022. But there's certainly a path ahead of us. I hope that you are enjoying the show.
1: This is definitely the first
2: step to get started in applying these principles to your life. So head over to
1: pomwealth.net forward slash podcast and check us out. You know, it's not as if we don't have a huge issue here with this idea of the coronavirus and vaccine. We also have another huge issue that is super opinionated, and I just was speaking with a with a client here in the last few hours where he said, Raiden, what are we gonna do if, and you know my if here, the next level of concern is we are in an election year and there's a lot of what ifs. There's a there's the a reelection of Trump and then there is an election of Biden. And for me personally, I'm not trying to make this question anything about politics in the sense of, you know, who should win or anything like that. What I wanna talk to you about though, as an economist, how do you see that playing out, you know, one versus the other? because. You know, There's data on this and we talk about it all the time that the reality of the stock market for the most part doesn't react as long as it knows who the president's going to be or is. Can we walk it through though? Cause there, this is a little different. It's a little different scenario. What do you think? What's the yeah. reaction here to either scenario?
2: So let me lay out the possible outcomes, okay? So we've got the presidency, we've got the house and we've got the Senate. Now I'm gonna take the house out of the picture because I think there's virtually no way that the Republicans take the house. I think the Democrats are going to keep the House. So now the two toss-ups are the presidency and the Senate. So there's really four outcomes, Republican president, Republican Senate, Democratic House, Republican president, Democratic Senate, Democratic House, Democratic president, Republican Senate, Democratic House, and then Democratic sweep. Okay. those are the
1: four. So everybody, if you're (laughs) listening, just draw that out on paper. (laughs) That was very impressive right there.
2: (laughs) Maybe I can even make it simpler. There's the Democratic sweep and there's everything else where there's some some sort of matching game and there's some Democrats. There's some Republicans that are in there now in everything but a Democratic sweep then I think what's going to most likely happen is more of the same of what we've seen over recent years. I don't expect any major changes in tax policy. I don't expect many changes in regulatory policy because the checks and balances that we have in our system that are there for a reason, they prevent major swings in policy. The one scenario that could see a more significant shift is if we see a Democratic sweep. Okay, Biden wins the presidency, the Democrats take the Senate, they keep the House. We have the Democratic sweep. now they have the possibility of pushing through some changes. For example, on the tax side, they would have the votes to raise the individual tax rate from 37 to 39.6. They would have the ability to raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Now, remember, and I think this is kind of getting lost at times, this has been their proposal to raise the corporate tax rate from 21 up to 28. We were at 35. We were at 35 if we go back three years ago. So even that, they've lowered the bar. They're bringing it up, but not as far as it used to be. But they've talked about those two pieces, the individual and the corporate tax rates, I think they can get that pushed through. They would have the votes to do it. There have been discussions on, are they going to reintroduce the social security tax on incomes over $400,000? Are they going to do things like change the treatment of capital gains, dividends, or the income so that it uses your personal tax rate rather than the short-term, long-term capital gains rate? I think those are questionable on whether or not they will pass. I don't think they will pass. I think the major concerns or the major questions are, you know, what would be the impact of things like those tax policy changes? But before we say what is the impact from that, I want you to step back in time with me for a second. Okay, so let's step back to 2008-2009. Now, 2008-2009, we have Obama becoming the president. So we have a Democratic presidency. Joe Biden is his vice president. They have 59 seats in the Senate. Now, if they get all of the toss-ups this time, they could be at about 53 seats, it looks like. So they had a larger lead, a larger majority in the Senate, and they had the House. They had the Democratic sweep. Now back then, they had the Bush era tax cuts, and that was the question: Are they going to change the taxes? Are they going to bring tax rates back up? But back then, just like now, they had elevated unemployment. They had an economy that was getting back on its feet, and they didn't come in in 2009 and say, "Okay, our priority is taxes. Let's get these tax rates raised back up. Let's let's you know, let's make sure that." the millionaires and billionaires are paying their first fair share and that the companies are paying a higher rate. No, they said, we need to get jobs back. We need jobs back. We need businesses investing. We need to focus on getting the states and the country on a growth path. And typically, raising tax rates is not seen as as one of the best ways to do that. So they did not go through the tax changes at that time. They didn't do it in 2009 or 10 or 11. They did it in 2013. There was a four year delay because their own people said, We're not gonna vote on that right now. We need to focus on getting things back to growth. Then once we're further along on the recovery process, then let's come back, then let's address policy, then let's address tax rates, then let's address regulation. Now, this time around, they don't have four years. So they come in, whoever is the president, comes in next year. If we see a democratic sweep, they really have about two years. Because based on who is up, the elections that we have in 2022, it looks very likely that the Republicans would take back the Senate. So there's a very real question of even if they have the votes from a policy standpoint to make the changes in the tax code, is that gonna be what they focus on? Or are they gonna focus on growth? Are they gonna focus on employment? Are they gonna focus on getting business investment up to get us back towards where we were faster? So let's say, let's say they do step in, okay? Let's continue along the chain of We get a democratic sweep. What if they do make this the priority? It's a bit of a headwind to grow. It's a headwind to economic growth. We can see that from what happened in 2018, 2019. We saw it in business investment. We saw it in personal income and how that translated to consumer spending. So I think it would be a headwind if we raised tax rates and we made some of these changes for both individuals and corporations. But at the same time, we're emerging from this recession and we have a tailwind that's pushing us towards growth. It's delayed purchases. It's just simply getting back onto our feet. What we saw from 2009 to 2018, we grew at about a 2% rate. We could have, and I think we should have, grown faster if we had better policies in place, but we plodded along steadily moving forward. As economic policy improved, we started to move a little faster. That's what I'm looking at here. We could see a two-year pace where we are recovering. I don't think that's gonna push us down into a recession, but it would cause us potentially to be recovering at a slightly slower rate Then I think we'd potentially see some movement out in 2022. But when I think about it from an investment standpoint, here's what I think about. it. It's like you're playing a baseball game, right? And now baseball's back, the teams are playing. It's like a baseball game and the the umpire comes up to us and says, hey, in the sixth inning, we're going to change the rules. Okay, so in the sixth inning, home runs, they don't count for points anymore. They're going to take them away. Well, up until you hit the sixth inning, you're going to play by the rules that are in place. You don't start shifting your batters around. You don't start shifting your positioning in the third inning because you're still playing under those rules until the change comes into effect. As it gets closer and you feel that confidence that yes, this is gonna pass through, this is gonna have the impact, then you start doing a little bit more of the positioning. But I think where we stand right now from an economic and market standpoint, there's a lot that can move the election needle between now and then. There's still a lot of uncertainty. So we are not running for the hills. We are not you know, making major shifts in our asset allocation based on who we think right now is most likely to get elected. We're gonna continue to watch that. I love that we get to have this conversation today, but we also offline get to have this conversation on an ongoing basis. Whether it's daily or weekly or monthly, we can talk about what we see going on. And we're gonna continue to do that up until the elections. And we gotta see where the economy is at. We gotta see where the the numbers come through on both the presidency and on the Senate. But I think there's more bark than bite. And it, it happens every four years. Like you said, you mentioned this earlier, there's a lot of volatility in the markets leading up to the election. And then the election comes, and whether you like the result or not, we now know who the president is. And it brings us a little more clarity. It brings more clarity to businesses, and they say, okay, now at least we know the direction that things are likely to head. Now we're going to start putting money to work. We're going to make these business investments that could have moved in one way or the other based on who was going to be elected. But now at least we know. We have some certainty. And here's the last thing, and I I can't tell you who's going to win the election. I don't know who that's going to be. You know, I can't tell you with certainty who's going to win the presidency, who's going to win the Senate. But here's what I can say with the highest conviction, is that the day we get the results, be that November 3rd or the 4th, or maybe it gets delayed with mail-in voting, the day we get the results, roughly half the country is going to be pissed, roughly half the country is going to be ecstatic, and then everybody's going to go back to work. And we're going to continue to work and be one of the most productive countries on the face of this earth. And Apple's gonna produce another iPhone regardless of who the next president is. And Amazon's gonna keep working from two day to one day to six hour to one hour shipping regardless of who the next president is. And there's entrepreneurs and innovators across this country that are gonna continue to push things forward regardless of who the next president is. We have this American spirit that you you, you certainly have not wanted to bet against over the last 200 plus years. In this election, is not going to change that.
3: That's great. I love the analogy there about baseball. It makes complete sense when you explain it that way. I think it's prudent to remind people, too, you know, four years ago, when Trump did get put in office, there was a lot of guesswork that was going on. You know, if Trump gets put in, here's what's going to happen. If Clinton gets in, here's what's going to happen. And ultimately, you had a lot of investors on the sidelines and that missed out on a ton of opportunity for the last four years. So we agree we're completely of that standpoint you know we're going to make decisions based off of what's in front of us not based on some guesswork so Andrew yeah. thanks a lot for that i think we have time for maybe one more question And, you know, as an economist, as a person, in the short term, what is, I would say, what is keeping you up
2: at night right now? What are you the most worried about? Yeah, the thing that I think about the most and that has me concerned, and this is something I've been thinking about for a little while, we have a year this year, we do the stimulus, we're gonna add two to $4 trillion to the debt. And ultimately, my concern is that as we continue spending and we spend more than we bring in, and it's a spending issue at the end of the day, we have to control the spending. No country on the face of this earth in history has taxed its way to sustainable prosperity. It just hasn't happened. We need to address the spending picture. Now, in the short term, this is a little bit less of an issue because, yes, we, we continue to run deficits. It's a bipartisan agreement to, to spend more than we make. We've been running up our debt, running up our debt, running up our debt. But over the last 40 years, interest rates have been declining, right? And those two kind of have offset themselves and, and GDP has been growing. So When I think about the debt in the short term, the most important key number is the interest that we're paying on the debt. How much is the interest we pay to the people who are essentially lending us this money? And right now, going into this year, it was about 1.7% of GDP. 1.7% of all we produce goes to paying our debts. Back in the 80s and the 90s, it was about 3%. So we've seen it significantly higher. But interest rates, again, they're at incredibly low levels and we're issuing debt right now at incredibly low levels. We're rolling over our old debt. It's like refinancing a mortgage at a lower rate. You're paying less month to month on the same debt load and even a little bit more. So the thing that concerns me about this, though, is that eventually interest rates are going to move higher. And when interest rates move higher, it's going to become more difficult to pay off this debt load. And so I get it. You, you fix the roof when the sun is out and, and we've been in a hurricane. We're in this this terrible storm where you batten down the hatches and you do whatever you need to do to get from here to tomorrow. But as we emerge from this, I want to believe that somebody's going to step up and say we need to address this budget picture now. This is an unsustainable path. And when I think about my two kids that I have at home, if we continue down this path, they're going to inherit a major mess that's going to be a big impediment to growth because we're moving money from the private sector, the entrepreneurs and the innovators were moving into the public sector to pay for what we're doing today. That's keeping me up. It's not something that's gonna throw us into a recession in the next one years, three years, five years, but it's something that I'm certainly gonna be watching. As we get further into the recovery, I hope it becomes a priority in Washington, that we address it, that we take care of it, that we do what we need to do before we're so far down this road that we've dug ourselves into a hole and we've locked ourselves into an incredibly slow pace of economic growth. So fingers crossed, and we kind of have to watch and wait and see.
1: Yeah, Andrew, you've shared a lot with us. I'm sure that it's a lot of value there for anybody who's listening. Just to kind of give us a nice perspective, because I believe that what you shared was not one-sided, it wasn't biased, it was really kind of looking at both sides of the what-ifs as we looked at the total picture. So it was certainly nice to hear your opinions, hear how you see things. Those that are listening to this, I know that for Murs and I, We found it a lot of benefit as well so i just want to say thank you very much for taking time out of your day to come on and chat with us and hopefully you found it to be a good conversation as well so thank you so much for being a part of our show today thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed it
0: all right everyone that wraps up today's episode of the secure your retirement podcast if you found value in today's episode we would love nothing more than for you to head on over to itunes and give us a five-star rating and a review be sure to take a screenshot of the review before you submit it, and we'll send you a special gift. Our book, Get Off the Retirement Roller Coaster." Just email morgan at pomwealth.net with a screenshot of the review to get your gift. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified of new episodes as they're released every week. And finally, please share our podcast with your favorite social network so more of your friends and family can benefit from this information always remember, you've worked hard to get where you are, and now you deserve to have a retirement that works hard for you.